There was no plan B for this well-known Hollywood director. He could only hope for the best, because if the worst happens, the movie is over. It's the last scene, and a thunderstorm and torrential rains is predicted to hit the salt flats where the land speed record on a motorbike is about to be filmed. I knew I couldn't go back. You just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She's dug even deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so why couldn't I? That was the turning point. Hi, I'm Phil Cogan. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast, where I talk to mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. People who take chances, those who swerve off the predictable road, face their fears, and refuse to say no. Amazingly resilient people who are motivated and tenacious. Those who have said bucket and who epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. You'll know his movies. 13 Days, Cocktail, No Way Out, The Bounty, Species, Dante's Peak, The Recruit, and The World's Fastest Indian. Roger Donaldson's success as a director derives from a unique combination of tenacity, hard work, serendipity, lovable cheekiness, ability to problem solve, a love of storytelling, and fast cars. Roger's been behind groundbreaking films for more than 35 years, and it's his love of New Zealand that really kick-started his directing career, a place that continues to draw this director to the bottom of the world to tell stories about unlikely heroes and local legends like Burt Monroe, a motorcycling world land speed record holder depicted in the world's fastest Indian and starring Sir Anthony Hopkins, a critically acclaimed movie adored all over the world that almost never made it into movie theaters. Sweetness. Well, first of all, uh, cheers. Cheers, mate. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for coming in. And um, it's very early in the morning here in Los Angeles. Uh, and but I'm it's sorry. one o'clock somewhere. Yeah, it is. And I'm sorry I don't have champagne glasses, oh, but this well. is the expensive stuff. I didn't skim no, on that's the... No, why, that's a bit early in the morning, Phil, but I appreciate it. And you'll get the truth out of me now. Yeah, absolutely. Get the no truth. Trick. The, the truth serum. So to cheers the truth. to you, mate. To the truth. <laughs> Wherever it may lie. Wherever it may be. Yes. Maybe we dig it up. Mm. Ah, and it's good. It's the French stuff. I mean, I'm telling you, it's not... No, it tastes like French stuff. Not the El Cheapo stuff. No, you wouldn't do Cheapo stuff. I wouldn't go for that. Roger, I, I, I started your story with talking about the day that you were faced with an impending storm that was about to roll in and you've got all these people out shooting a movie and the pressures of all of that and you're in charge and calling the shots literally. And I just wonder if you could take us back to that moment and what that was like. This was the last day at the Bonneville Salt Flats. We had hundreds of vehicles. We had hundreds of people it was, and it had to get done. We were checking out, I believe, to fly to New Zealand. We, so everything had to get done and the weather was starting to deteriorate and deteriorate. Somehow it held off until the very end, but that night a like torrential rain came in, covered the soft flats with about six inches of water. Our set that we'd built was over 30 miles, spread over 30 miles. It took weeks to find all the bits and get them off the soft flats. I mean, it was incredibly lucky. Wow. But what is it like for somebody who's in charge of all of that? Like you've got to make the decision to go for it. Do you like that? Part of, part of being the director is being the decision maker and, and being the, you know, the one that does call the shots and says, you know, we're, we're going to 
what we're going to do, um, but you don't do it on your own either, you know. So you need a, an amazingly competent group of people behind you, around you, in front of you, over the top of you, under you, who who are just as dedicated as you are to making it all happen. I mean, everything sort of went according to plan. Amazing. I just got to say go. Yeah, yeah. Well, sort of, but I mean, it's all on you because if it, if you don't get it, then no, they true. point the finger back yeah, at yeah. you, right? And you I don't get, know what would have happened if we didn't get it. By the way, really. How many times in your career do you think you've been in that situation where it's been that? I don't think many times I've ever been sort of on the knife edge like that where it, if, I, if the weather had come in a day earlier, I, I honestly don't know what would have happened. And it would have just completely blown up the budget, right? Well, the budget was on its, you know, the, every movie, but an independent movie is always like clinging on by its fingernails. Yeah. And we were clinging on by our fingernails. And you've got Anthony Hopkins. I mean, you don't want to leave a guy like that hanging around no. and saying... You know, I'm sorry, Anthony, but um, you have to wait another week. Well, another week, and you're going to do it for nothing. Yeah, no. I'm sorry, we've run out of money, and no, you don't want to. Have we to just say have that. to gather all the stuff from a 30 mile radius and yes. pull it back together. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I've said it to you many times before. Uh, world, the world's fastest Indian, which is about a New Zealand gentleman by the name of Bert Munro, is it's a favorite film of mine because I just love this idea that this unsuspecting character from New Zealand travels to the other side of the world to go for a land speed record. And can you tell us about this story of Burt Munro, a Kiwi from Invercargill? Well, this movie really started out as a documentary that I made um, back in the early 1970s. I went to, we, I had a partner, Mike Smith, who was also into motorcycling. And we'd heard about this guy, Burt Munro, who lived down in Invercargill. And we also there was a rumor that he'd set a land speed record on this bike. Anyway, we tracked him down. We wrote letters to him and he invited us to come down and see him and interview him, which we did. And as a part of doing that documentary, we went to uh, we went with him to America, these two young guys and Bert Monroe, and we went on this road trip to the Bonneville Salt Flats where he ran his bike for the last time. And this character, I couldn't let him go. You know, he was just such a charismatic happy-go-lucky, the glasses half full sort of guy. He just seemed to me like his story and the, and the way the people in America had helped him and the people in, at home in New Zealand had also helped him, the, the sort of the way people had got behind this guy and just helped him get where he wanted to go was quite extraordinary. And so back in 1979, when after I'd made uh, one feature film, I started writing a script about Burt Munro. Anyway, Cut to 2005, you know, I'm still writing this script and finally I got to make this movie about him. An incredible... I and mean, it was really, I guess, the, the, one of the reasons the movie works. It's like the ultimate fish-out-of-water story, you know. It's this naive guy on the road, not even quite knowing where he's going and everybody sort of helping him get there. And you've got to see the movie to see how it ends, but it's a pretty good end. Roger, uh, I want to jump to your your first feature film. I had the good fortune of, uh, of meeting Bob Harvey. He uh, had this uh, advertising agency called McCarmons. And Bob, bless his heart, you know, um, put his money where his mouth is and, um, you know, gave me work, as well as um, financing some of my early films. He gave me, um, it was his idea to make Smith's Dream the book into Sleeping Dogs. Wow. Um, back in the, about 1974, I met Ian Mune, who was a writer and a director and a stage actor together with my buddy um, Dave Mitchell who died 
last week. I'm sorry to hear. God bless his soul, lovely guy. Yeah. I'll miss him terribly. I do miss him terribly. Yeah. We made a film called Derek, which was the first dramatic film that I was involved with, and it was about a guy who was his last day at work. He'd been fired, but everybody's pretending he's leaving voluntarily, and they're having a pathetic little party, going away party for him, and he's getting drunk and making a fool of himself and trying to make a move oh. on the, on the, uh, you know, the, the. the um, secretary from work and it's a just pathetic story of this individual making a complete dick of himself anyway the film was sort of it was a bit risque and the local there was a local morals campaigner called patricia bartlett who took a particular dislike to this film and the moral integrity of the film and uh, wrote nasty letters to the paper about it and that was the beginnings of <laughs> nothing could have been better publicity for us. <laughs> so that was our first sort of little success but we used the success of that to go on and raise the money to make another short half-hour film of a Catherine Mansfield short story called The Woman at the Store. Such a prolific writer, Catherine Mansfield. She was yeah. and we made this little film and this film was you know looked pretty classy and we raised the money from that one film to make another six short films of New Zealand well-known short story writers. Were you hooked at that point? Like once you were in, oh, no, in no. at that point, and, you and were and really what like... I was doing was making commercials to make a living, but I was desperate to be making, you know, dramatic films, so I would... And you were so young, Roger. You were like mid-20s or something, right? I was pretty young. Yeah, I mean, do you ever think about that? Like th how much responsibility you had so quickly? Well, I, I was a, always thought I was sort of better than I was, maybe. <laughs> Well, but didn't no, you have no, to no, have that, that kind of attitude? No, I, uh, the, that's the wrong way of putting it. I was, I was very confident. Confident that I, not, not out of arrogance, I don't think, just confident that I that nobody else was doing it, so why couldn't I? Yeah. And I knew. But I, you have to have that edge, yeah, don't no, you think? No, I mean, I, you have I mean to... and I was prepared to put my own money into these projects, and I which think is so, the biggest no-no ever, Roger. No, right? Like everybody, everybody said, tells you, don't ever do spend that. Spend your own money on a, on your own movie. Right. But for me, it did work out well because I wouldn't have made these films unless that's what happened, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, these seven films we marketed under, Ian and I, we took them to the Cannes Film Festival and we marketed them under the title Winners and Losers. Hmm. And we, the first people that bought them were, I think there was a, there were some buyers from the Scandinavian countries. I think Denmark was the first one to buy them. And... All of the Scandinavian countries bought these films and then they told other people anyway, out of going to Cannes, we sold it, I think, to something like 52 countries. I mean, just about everywhere our television bought these films from New Zealand. Did you make any money, Roger? No, but we did get our money back. Yeah, and, and, and your name was getting out there. And everything was, you know, looking up. I mean, but I remember the night we made these first sales of our films, Ian and I went out and got on the Quasette there in Cannes and we got completely pissed. <laughs> and we're staggering back, you know, and we run into these lady buyers from Scandinavia and one of them I remember goes, ah, oh, winners and losers. Tonight I think you are losers. <laughs> there was definitely a sort of groundswell of, of interest. I mean, our selling, what, what, how we sold the concept of, of getting involved in these films was that New Zealand needed to establish its own cultural identity. And that these films would be, would represent that cultural identity, and you know we would have actors who are New Zealand actors in them. That you know everything didn't have to sound like you were from America or England. Or but it was a big breakthrough for television to have that sort of programming on it. Absolutely, and 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 Sleeping Dogs was such a big breakthrough too, because you also went with an untested actor by the name of Sam Neill. Well, an untested actor plus an untested director, you know. Yeah, I mean... And, and well, Sam, I, I saw Sam 
He made, I don't even know what the name of it was. but He Barry, was making documentaries, wasn't he? He was a film director himself making documentaries for the National Film Unit. And he'd been in a, in a film that Barry Barclay had made where Sam played a priest, and he was really good. I saw this film, this, and I thought it was a documentary. It wasn't a documentary. It was a, he wasn't a priest. He was pretending to be a priest. And I was like, wow. This guy's got something. This guy looks great. He's a great actor. And so anyway, I tracked Handsome. And I tracked him down, and Sam was in the movie. And then I wanted Jack Nicholson also to be in the film to play this role of the American. Are you serious? Film. Did you try so, to get him? So we, we found out he's the, the name of his agent. Anyway, this guy... I'm sure he only took the call because it was from New Zealand. I mean, how many calls were from New Zealand would there be in a day? So anyway, he takes the call and I go like, well, I'm Roger Donaldson from New Zealand and I'm, I'm producing this film and uh, we want Jack to be in our film. And the guy goes, I still remember, he goes, oh, Jack, you want Jack Nicholson, do you, to come to New Zealand to be in your film? And he says, how, how much money have you got for Jack? And we go, oh, well, um, and I go, God, I think we could get, like, I'm, they were like, how much have we got? I mean, we, go, we, we, we could come up with $5,000. He goes, oh, Roger, I don't think Jack's going to be coming. He said, $5,000. But he said, I've got another client who loves fishing, um, Warren Oates. He said yeah. he loves fishing and I hear there's great fishing in New Zealand. And maybe you could, maybe Jack, uh, maybe uh, Warren would come to New Zealand if you, get, if you organize him some, you know, a couple of airfares for him and his girlfriend and, and some fishing lines. So... That's how Warren came. I don't know how much we paid him. It wouldn't have been more than 5000 because we had to give him first-class airfares for him and his girlfriend and send him off fishing. But, but Roger, this seems to be a pattern in your career. Like, you're, you're constantly, like, to make things happen, you have had to do some pretty crazy things. Just that, uh, Well, like, you have to. I mean, these are a couple of the high points of the crazy things you have to do to get a movie made. The, right. When we, when we were going to make the film, Smash Palace, which was the next feature I did. Yeah, um, which is really a pivotal film for you yeah, in terms of I'm, legitimizing you as a director you're right and one that i'm very proud of and i wrote it and produced and but well, i remember is there anything you didn't do you didn't act in it did you roger no no okay but we, we part of the 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 plot of how we were going to do this film was that i was going to sponsor this race car in the new zealand race car series and that we would film these races and that would become the character in the movie and so we come to the day that we're going to, you know, we've, we've arranged that we're going to make a press, you know, have a PR function and we're going to release the car and show the car. And I thought by then we'd have all of our money, or you know, guaranteed to make the film. We had none except my money, you know, and I thought... Once well, again, you're putting your own so money I thought, in your oh, well, I, I, We can shoot for a week on the money that, I've, uh, that I'm going to put into it. Does the crew and everybody know that... No, no, nobody no. knows this. So... I ring up everybody who's showed interest in it and I'm trying to get them and I think, you know, if anybody's can be in it, they'll be in it. So I ring each one of them up and I think it was another three or four entities and I go like, listen, everybody else has put their money in but you haven't put yours in yet. If you put your money in, this is a go movie and I was like, somehow oh, they all nice. they all came across because they didn't want to disappoint the other ones who hadn't put their money in yet. Anyway, they all did come across. Amazing film, Roger. I mean, really amazing film. Another... One of those crazy moments that you do to try and get your film out there in front of an audience. Ian and I, we went to, um, I think we, we went to the Cannes Film Festival with, with Sleeping Dogs and we had it in a fourplex. I still remember there was like, you know, they had the marquee with the names of the four movies that were on and the name the cinema number that they were in. Our first screening's got about six people at it. And like, well, that's not very good. Six people, you need more than six people to show up, you know. Even if they're all buyers, you're in trouble, you know. So... 
there was another movie in the theatre next door that had a full house. So Ian and I, we got a ladder in the night, in the middle of the night, and we got up and we changed the numbers on the theatres. So the next day, we got a full house. And everybody, you know, the movie's tossed and it's not the movie they're expecting, but, you know... Most it's good. Them, most of them stayed because, you know, you're not going to What are you going to do? They all, I everyone assumed that they'd walked out, got into the wrong theater, and they're like, well, it's a full house. It must be a good movie, you know? <laughs> anyway, most people stayed, and from that day on, we had full houses. Roger, can you be sued for this know. at this late probably, stage? Probably, <laughs> Past probably the did, of limitations? Probably somebody did wonder what happened to their audience the next Yeah, day. like, what the hell? We did so well last all night. All Fair and Love and War and Movies. And they've all gone. So Smash Palace, which you did everything for, I mean, you, you, you wrote it, directed it, uh, wrote it, directed it, produced it, and, and then this film... And sold it. And sold it. This film really it did. That changes was, your life. And I didn't really expect or understand how much it would change my life, but I took the film to... It was in the market at Cannes. And you're already... Wait, you're just such, still a young fella. You're not even 30. Right, true, and there, and and there you are, and, and you're just you're in the hunt. I mean, people are like, here's this young director from New Zealand. And well, he's I think done that's you know that was what you know people loved the movie. The American film critics really did pick up on it. These American critics sort of spread the word that there was this you know good movie from New Zealand, and it became the sort of darling of the festival really. And from that point on, my life became very different, and I had lots of opportunities to go to America and make films. Was that the biggest pivotal? career turns. I wanted to make dramatic films and so I had this option uh, possibility of being able to come to the States and make films and the first um, there was a guy called Harry Uffland who uh, said he wanted to represent me and he represented Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro he took me on as a client um, Can you believe it? I mean when and somebody looks you in the eye and says, oh, I'd like to no, represent no, you and you yeah, know who no, this person no, is. Exactly, and they would, try, they would hand me down to New Zealand, call in the middle of the night because they'd forgotten the time difference. Along comes Ed Pressman, who um, made some great movies. Um, Badlands, I think, was one of his most famous films uh, that Warren Oates was in, by the way, and Sissy Spacek. Coincidentally, yeah. Ed says, you know, I'm doing a sequel to Conan the Barbarian, and I love your movie, Smash Palace, and I want you to write it and direct it. So Conan. Conan, the sequel to Conan. Which is, I mean, so, again, you must uh, be like... Well, it wasn't exactly how I imagined my career going, but I was unemployed and it was a movie. So if you need work, you need work. So I said yes. And I got Ian Munover and together we wrote the sequel to Conan. And we just got to the end of writing this script... And um, Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights of Conan off Ed. And we go, we go, I go to a meeting with Dino, and Dino holds up this script and says, oh, why you want to make this a movie? You know, 270 pages long? You've written this script, it's 270 pages long. And I go, what? It's not 200, it's 140 or something. Give me a look, and it's all in Italian. He's had it translated into Italian, and it's um, 270 pages long. <laughs> So I'm sort of, um, I'm like, I realize this is not going anywhere. And I knew that um, they had built down in New Zealand a replica of the bounty up in Whangarei. It was sitting there and I don't know for what reason they hadn't taken delivery of it. And I, I don't know what even made me say, I said, what are you doing with the bounty? And he goes, why? Why you ask? 
And I go, oh, well, I just know it's sitting down there in New Zealand and are you ever going to make that movie? Anyway, the phone next morning is about five in the morning. It's in the middle of winter, I remember, and it was dark. And I pick up the phone. I got the phone round the wrong way. And I hear a voice going in the sort of, not where I expect to hear it, but down here. So I go, Donald, Donald. I go, oh, he's not here. <laughs> it turns out it's Dino demanding that I get up immediately and come immediately to his bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel for a meeting with him. And I think, well, you know, he doesn't tell me about what or anything, but, you know, maybe he's changed his mind about Conan or something. So I go over to the Beverly Hills Hotel and Dino goes, um, I don't think you make Conan. I think you make uh, the bounty. I say, I thought David Lean was doing the bounty for you. And he goes, no, 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 he's gone. We parted company a few months ago and I need a director and I reckon you're the guy. And I go, so he says, will you do it? And I go, well, I haven't read the script, you know. And he goes like, oh, want to read the script? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I want to read the script. So he says, I'll tell you what, I'm on a plane to Mexico to see to the set of Dune that he was shooting down in Mexico. And he said, you call me on this phone and... Tell me if you'll do the bounty or not. So, of course, you know, the truth was I'd, I didn't really have to read the script because I knew I had to do it. I had no options. And it was written by David, by Robert Bolt. And it was, you know, obviously a And David Lean was going to do it. I mean, God, so if he was going to do bad. it. But, yeah. So anyway, I reluctantly say, yes, I'll do it, you know. Unbelievable, Roger. What a crazy story. And then did you know any, at that point, did you know who the cast was? Well, there was no cast at that point. There was well, no well, cast. No, actually, uh, that's not true. Anthony Hopkins had, was um, in place. Nobody else. So you know Anthony Hopkins is going to be in, yeah. in your movie. Yeah. And then there was Daniel Day-Lewis. All of those people were cast once I was on board. Mel Gibson, Liam yeah. Neeson. We got a fantastic cast of I, people. I mean, one thing that Dino had was, you know, people would take his phone power. calls. People would take his phone calls. For you as a, as a young director, what was it like working with Anthony Hopkins? Did he did he accept you straight away? or? Well, I, you know, for, first of all, I think, you, you know, he thought he was going to be in a movie that was going to be directed by David Lean. Right. He'd been attached to the movie for you know, a long time. Tony and I, I couldn't claim we got on like a house on fire. We were ready to kill each other, I think is probably a more accurate description. Why? Well, looking back on it, I think, you know, the character of William Bly was a very, you know, challenging role to do. And Tony becomes the characters that he plays in the films. I mean, one day I remember on the set, Tony's like looking like really upset and distressed yeah. and looks like he's ready to kill me. And I go, Tony, Tony, I go, Tony, it's just a movie. I go, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? He goes, Roger, you think I'm crazy, don't you? And I go, no, no, Tony, I don't <laughs> think you're crazy. I just think you're going, taking it a bit serious today. And he goes, well, you should have seen me when I played Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, I realized, you know, Tony is such a, you know, he's such a committed actor. He really does become these parts he plays. And the character of Bly was a very, you know, he, that's why he's so good in the movie, he, you know, but he didn't turn it off between takes and I, I had not enough experience to make the, understand that what he was doing was just being blind. Character. He, had, he was getting he did, in it. Yeah, yeah. And I was one of the crew. And things were probably sketchy enough at that stage. You probably never thought you'd be making the world's fastest Indian with him decades no, later. No, no. But you did. We did. And he mastered that New Zealand accent like I've never seen a foreigner oh, no. master well, a New not, Zealand not accent. New Zealand, New Zealand Invercargill accent. Which is a whole other thing again. He would listen to my documentary about Bert and he would just recite Bert's lines out of my documentary. and Over and over. Over and over every morning. Roger, want to talk about uh, 2000 when you did 13 Days? Because that, that was also a bit of a pivotal moment in your uh, career and some big actors. 
What I liked about 13 Days was that I remember very clearly what happened, you know, when the Americans and the Russians were sort of coming to blows over the missiles that had been taken to Cuba back in the 1960s. And I remember, in fact, I kept a diary and there was a page in my diary about basically, you know, what's going to happen today, you know, is there going to be a world tomorrow sort of thing. So anyway, I was, you know, interested in this area of, of you know, world politics. And so when I was... Um, and it came to me sort of through, you know, basically a, a chance breakfast. Um, Alan Scott, who'd written Dante's Peak, was had a, had a breakfast, and he's um, um, there was a guy there whose father was the the key to the the story that Kevin Costner played, and uh, Kevin O'Donnell was there at breakfast, and he we were talking about just what was going on, and he said they're making a film about my father, uh, Kenny O'Donnell, and Kenny O'Donnell was he was the right-hand man of of the Kennedys in the Kennedy White House you know, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I uh, met with Armin Bernstein, who was the producer, and I uh, got got hired as the director of 13 Days. And it was an incredibly challenging movie to make because of its scale, but it was probably one of the most exciting and, you know, ambitious films that I've ever been involved in because of the scale of it. The pressure, Roger, of making a film like that, because that was meant to be the the biggest, that was the the big blockbuster of the year, right? That film was hailed as, you know, this is the big one. And you're telling not, you're not just making a big film, but you're also telling a piece of American history, an Australian The, the, the great thing about that film <laughs> is that it's had legs. My, my kids have to watch this film in high school. Now. Really? Yeah, it's in the high school syllabus, watching this film and as a you know, discussion about the Cuban Missile Crisis and that part of American history. Y your kid's proud of you as a director? They're probably embarrassed when, they, when people say, is that your dad who made that film? You know? <laughs> My oldest son, Aaron, you know, he never told any of his friends that his dad made movies. And he was sitting, and he was at medical school, and he's sitting around. This was a story that came to me on his, at his wedding. His best friend, <clears throat> I'm at the table, and he says, we didn't know you, you made movies, but we were watching Cocktail one day and Aaron says, that was, there's, that's me in there and that bar scene there. And they go like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And they says, stop the tape, wind it back and have a look. Sure enough, it's Aaron at the bar. And they go, what the hell are you doing in Jamaica in Cocktail? And he has to confess that his father made it. Tom Cruise, you worked with Tom. Yeah. And uh, what was, gosh, he, that was, he was in his heyday then, right? Because he'd just come off. Well, I think he's still in his heyday. I mean, one of those, he's, he's such a hardworking, ambitious, talented, you know, maverick, you know, he masters whatever he's going to do. So when he turns up to work, they say he's just ready to when go. When he turned up to be a barman, he was a barman. And though, all those stunts and everything, they were his. He did them all. It seems to me, just looking at all the different characters in all your films, you, you're really, you really identify with the, the characters in the film, those who those people represent, Burt Monroe, and then most recently, Bruce McLaren. Again, for those who haven't seen McLaren, wow. People know the name McLaren, but they don't necessarily know no. McLaren was this New Zealand race car driver. No. And that was the thing that really uh, 
that I really noticed just it's, it's just the idea that Bruce achieved so much at such a young age at 32. You, it makes you wonder what he would have done if no, he no, no, doubled I mean, his age. No, no, I mean, <laughs> if he'd been that's, 64. That's the tragedy of it, really. Uh, it's terribly tragic. And, and uh, but I, you love these characters. Do you see yourself in them? Do you want to be them? Is it what do you think that is? I love telling their stories, is really what I do. I mean, I see myself as a storyteller. You know, I love yeah. to, I love, you know, like, You know, when I was a kid, I used to like to write stories. Um, I used to like to make up stories. I can, you know, even remember my little unknown daydreams of, you know, remember one of my earliest memories is I wanted a swimming pool. And my mother, I remember saying, if you want a swimming pool, you've got to make yourself one. <laughs> and I remember making, <laughs> digging a hole in the back garden and filling it with water. And of course, it was black water, you know. And I still can remember all the sticks floating on top. And I was like, I didn't mind the black water, but the sticks floating on my swimming pool, I wasn't. So you've always been a dreamer. So I was a bit of a, you know, schemer and a dreamer. I love this quote uh, from you. If people were scared of consequences, nothing would go forward. Risk-taking should be a major element of anybody's life. The risk I took is that I might, that things might not work out and it might be a complete failure and that my movies uh, might not be popular with people. But then if you're a race car driver and you fuck up, you're in much bigger trouble. You're in big, bigger trouble, much bigger trouble. No, I mean, I see myself as a risk taker sort of emotionally, but not a risk taker, you know, physically. You know, I think people who do really dangerous things, I think, well, I think everybody has a sort of a begrudging respect for people who really do crazy dangerous things because we all know how precious our lives are and somebody who is prepared to flaunt that relationship between life and death at the, at the absolute limit of what's possible... I think everybody has a begrudging respect for them because ultimately we're all heading in the same direction anyway. But there's something, there's something about all of this that you find infectious. You know, one of my favorite quotes is luck is the residue of design. You have, you have taken so many risks and, and people could say, oh, you know, he's lucky because of this happened and that happened. But no, it's because you've, you've put yourself out there you've taken yeah, I mean risk. my philosophy is a bit like you've, you've got to be you've got to get lucky but you've got to work hard to get lucky right and then the biggest risk in life is not taking one that's and, and that's that's as good as it gets that advice absolutely and and now it makes me wonder I mean you've got still so much passion you've, you've got such a body of work behind you does it become more and more difficult to make choices about what's ahead of you because you've got that body of work behind you? Well, you, you know, you, you, you look at the numbers and you realise you can't keep making movies forever. On the other hand, you know, I feel more passionate about what I do now than I've ever done, really. So, so where are you, what are you going to do with that passion now, Roger? What's... <laughs> Try and find some stupid bastard who'll give me some money and then I can get out and make these fucking movies. <laughs> Roger, I've got a couple of questions for you. Can you, can you... <laughs> I thought you'd had a couple already, mate. Uh, just three more that I should say. It's bloody hard. All right, we're, we're done. Um, Roger, last time you, you laughed so hard that you cried, can you remember? I've seen you laugh and cry a few times. We've had some good dinners, you and me and some of our mates, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Really good Well, you've dinners. got a great sense of humor and you've, all got, you've always... I think I, uh, you do your accent is as good as it gets. Give us a little Jamaican. bit of Asian. You want me to finish off with the Jamaican and ask you the question, Roger? In page, yeah. All right. I want to ask you a question. If you were going to take a road trip across America and you could take three people, when I say three people, I mean 
three, three people on a road trip across America. Anybody from any time in history in the car with you driving across America. You know what? I, here's, here's three people that I'd love to do a road trip with. A couple of my sons and you. That'd be a good experience. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. We'd definitely do some scheming. Yeah, I think so. I actually, I think that might get a little dangerous. <laughs> so, Roger, we all have an expiration date. And if you knew that tomorrow was your last day on Earth, what would you do with it? Well, it'd be a bit hard to achieve, but if I could, I would get my family around me. They're all over the world. My old mum's in Australia. We've got a son in London. I've got a daughter in New York. I've got a son in Brisbane, kids in New Zealand here. I'd get them all around me if I had that, if I was lucky enough to be able to get them all together. Roger, thanks for taking the time to talk to me, and I'm pretty excited to see what you might be doing next. I have a feeling it's going to be filled with passion and vigor. And uh, hope. if anybody has some cash they want to throw Roger's I've got, way. Have I got scripts for you? This guy's got 20 scripts in the drawer. He's ready to go. Will you, will you give him a producer credit, Roger? You can have a producer credit. You, you can have a producer credit? And, and you can have the rest of this champagne. <laughs> this Cheers, not, I'm not joking. This is champagne in here, mate. No, Did no, you no. Yeah, no. Loose lips sink ship. <laughs> Loose lips tell the stories. <laughs> that's right. That's a tricky, that's a bit under the table that... Yeah, I mean, it's and then ask you to tell the truth. We're just warming up the truth serum. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Phil. If you have a really cool story that you want to share with us, then why not share it? Maybe you'll become my next guest. Don't forget, you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com.